we do pray that God will use these new facilities as a tool, and that's really all it is, is a tool to impact many lives for Christ. Bless you all uh, for your prayers and for the way that you have supported the BUILD initiative um, at Bears Paul, also here at Central Campus, and other initiatives we've taken at the other campuses. Um, just thank you for your faithfulness in this regard and joining us in, in providing the tools we need to continue to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, we welcome all of you who are joining us online, as well as those of you who are meeting here at Central Campus, and those of you meeting together at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, Bridgeland, South Calgary, and at Bears Paw. We just started a study in the book of Romans, and last time we learned not only that the gospel of Jesus Christ has explosive power to radically change a person's life, but also their eternal trajectory, and that it's offered freely to us by God's grace to all who believe. Paul's life was turned upside down when he met and put his trust in the resurrected Christ. And that's why early in this letter, he declared, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to all who believe. The reason that he's willing to be rejected by others, to be shunned and to be told where to go and how to get there is because he is absolutely convinced that the only hope for the inner storm, the emptiness, the fear and the uncertainty that people are experiencing in life is Jesus Christ who will invade the life of those who have placed their hope and trust in him and will slowly uh, begin to change them in a good way from the inside out. And so, as I pointed out last time, this is also why, as Christ followers, we must not water down or explain away the truth of the scriptures. We must not replace the biblical narrative with the more popular, politically correct cultural narrative. Nor must we let temporary earthly matters, even matters like COVID, as concerning as it is, to become the all-consuming thing in our life. To the point where we get distracted from giving high priority to eternal matters like introducing others to the, the Jesus that we know and love through the way we live our lives, uh, through our attitudes, and through our acts of kindness. Yes, of course, we need to care about the health and other needs of people around us, but we must care even more for their spiritual health and the state of their eternal soul. Because to die of COVID is tragic, but to die without knowing Christ personally is even more tragic. Well, it's with that in mind, we come now to verse 18 of chapter 1, where Paul begins to spell out in greater detail what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Now, if you've ever had a bad cold or a flu, then you know what it feels like 
to, to, to be sick, to feel lousy. You've experienced the nausea, the, the fever, the achiness, the soreness, the fatigue. It also means you know how wonderful, even exhilarating it is to get over the illness and to feel well again. You see, we would never appreciate, or at least not fully appreciate, what an amazing gift it is to feel healthy were it not for the times that we've been sick, the times we've not felt well. Well, here in Romans, Paul essentially says the gospel of Jesus Christ is incredibly good news, but if you really want to understand and appreciate why it's good news, you have to first understand the bad news. You need to first understand our sinful condition before holy God and that the wrath of God is actually directed at those who ignore him, those who suppress the truth about him and or replace him um, with someone or something else. And Paul devotes the next two and a half chapters to what we might refer to as the bad news. And so put on your seatbelts. Strap yourself down because we're going to be hitting some turbulence. We're going to be hitting some bad news. But hang in there because really, really good news is a coming. So please turn your Bibles, your Bible apps now to Romans 1, beginning to read from verse 18. And if you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand um, and join us in reading our scripture lesson for today. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, and birds and animals and reptiles." They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask now, Lord, that you would teach us from your word. And Lord, you would focus our minds on you, on your word to us today, that you would soften our hearts to receive what you're saying to us. And you give us the courage to do what you're asking us to do or to be. For we pray it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I doubt I need to tell you that our world is a troubled place. Recently, the Secretary General of the United Nations gave a very grim report of the state of the world, not only in relation to all the fallout related to COVID, but on a number of other fronts as well. Which, of course, leads us to ask, what is wrong with our world? 
Many accuse the judicial system. Um, others, the political, the educational, the economic systems of being responsible for what's wrong with our world. And there is some truth to their perspective. However, I believe G.K. Chesterton got to the heart of the problem when he said, you want to know what's wrong with the world? I am. I'm what's wrong with the world, he said. You probably noticed, we live in a world where most people are increasingly inclined to blame everything and everyone else for what's wrong in the world today. But the Bible teaches we need only to look at ourselves. Whether we want to admit it or not, our hearts are sinful. They are bent towards selfishness and rebellion against God. Our world is messed up in large part because we want to be boss. We want to call the shots and live the way that we want to live. In order, and in order to do that, many people have removed God from his rightful place in our lives. Dr. John Stott writes, many of the happenings of civilized society would not exist if it were not for the sin of man. A promise is not enough. We need a contract. Doors are not enough. We need to lock and bolt them. Law and order are not enough. We need the police to enforce them. We cannot trust each other. We need protection from one another. It's a sorry state of affairs, he, he writes. And this is why the wrath of God is being revealed. Look at verse 18 again. Paul writes, the wrath of God is being revealed in our world because of two things. Human godlessness and human wickedness. So what is godlessness? Well, godlessness is the rejection of God. It doesn't necessarily mean that you don't believe that God exists. Rather, it is living as though God doesn't exist. It essentially, it's essentially saying that someone or something other than God is Lord of my life, is calling the shots in my life. It's this attitude that says, God's not going to tell me what to do. God's not going to define what's right and wrong for me. Recently, I read a story about a 10-year-old girl who defiantly refused to obey her mother in front of her mother's friends. After several attempts to get through to her, the mother um, had no choice but to take her daughter upstairs. And she put her in the walk-in closet um, of her parents' bedroom, telling her daughter to think long and hard about her rebellious attitude. 30 minutes or so later, she went back upstairs to see how her daughter was doing. And her daughter said, oh, I'm doing great. I've been spitting on your shoes. I've been spitting on your clothes, on the carpet, and on the walls. And now I'm just waiting for more spit. It is this kind of defiant attitude that the Apostle Paul is referring to here. An attitude that says to God, I will do what I want to do. Now, on the other hand, wickedness means living without any rules. At its core is just plain selfishness. Do your own thing, be your own judge, and do unto others before they do it unto you type of attitude. 
Godlessness is sin against God. Wickedness is sin against God and other people. Well, in the passage we're looking at today, Paul addresses two questions. First, why is God's wrath being revealed? And the second is, how is God's wrath being revealed? Well, today we're going to look primarily at verses 18 to 23, where Paul explains why God's wrath is being revealed. Next week, we're going to focus on the, uh, how God's um, wrath is being revealed. Like a prosecutor in the court of law, Paul makes the following case. Point one, God has clearly revealed himself to all human beings everywhere, and therefore they are without excuse. Point number two, people have been suppressing the truth of God and replacing God with their own gods or idols. Point number three, when we deliberately reject and replace God and the truth of God, we fall under his wrath. So let's look at each of these, shall we? First of all, Paul says that God has clearly revealed himself to all of humanity. Look at verse 19. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world... God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen. Now, these verses teach us that every person on earth knows in his or her heart there is a God. It's intuitive. It's been put there by God. We may ignore God. We may try to explain him away. But deep down inside, every person knows there is a God. You can go almost anywhere on the planet and you're going to find evidence of worship. Shrines, temples, idols, icons, mosques, synagogues, and of course churches. Archaeologists will tell you that in the vast majority of ancient cities and civilizations that have been uncovered, there is evidence of worship. Though people are not always clear on who God is or what he's like, they know intuitively that there is a God. Now people wonder, how can God hold someone accountable for not knowing a God that they have never heard of? Well, I don't have the time to, um, in this message, to, to fully address that question, but I did deal with it in the Why Believe series in a sermon that you can find online entitled, What About Those Who Have Never Heard? But here's the point. Paul says here, everyone has the God-given capacity to look at creation and say, there has to be a God. Look at verse 20 again. For since the creation of the world, God's Invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen. Theologians call this general revelation, or God revealing himself to everyone on the planet through his creation. Now, God is also given a special revelation of himself or a much greater and a much deeper understanding of who he is uh, through two means. 
through the written word of God, the scriptures, the Bible, and also through the living word, Jesus Christ, when he came to our planet. But here, Paul says, God's reality and creative power has been clearly revealed down through time to everyone who has ever lived and has been a language that every people group has understood. Even the most ancient of times, long before the telescope and the microscope were invented, the greatness of God was evident both in the vastness of the universe and the stars and also in the intricacies of nature, like a small seed reproducing itself into a giant tree exactly like the one that it came from. They witnessed the greatness of God through the miracle of human birth and the glory of the sunrise and sunset. In short, they had enough information to conclude that these are not the product of chance, but the design of a powerful, creative God. King David hit it on the head when he wrote in Psalm 19:1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. Now in verse 21, Paul says, the problem is, even though God has clearly revealed himself, people tend to do one of two things or both. They suppress the truth of God and or they replace God with the things that God created. First of all, people suppress the truth of God. Look at verse 18 again. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The Greek word here for suppress means to hold it down, to restrain it. When I think of the word suppress, I think of the time our boys built a huge snow ramp near the bottom of the hill behind our house at the time. And then they decided to send their youngest brother, Mike, who was about six at the time, down the hill at breakneck speed to try out to see how safe that ramp really was. And when Mike flew about seven feet into the air and grazed the nearby tree, causing him to scream, of course, with terror and pain, they all jumped on him, not to help him, but to hold him down and put their hands over his mouth so their dad wouldn't hear the screaming and the agony that he was in. That's a picture of what it means to suppress, to hold down the truth. They told me about that about 20 years later, by the way. <laughs> Paul writes, God has clearly revealed himself to people everywhere, but because they want to run their own life, they actually suppress the truth. I'm just going to ignore the truth. I'm going to pretend like it's not even there because I want to live this way. And folks, that, that is so foolish. It's like the doctor telling you that you're a candidate for a heart attack and, and you just ignore it, completely ignore it. 
In verse 21, Paul adds this. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. He says, they know there's a God, but because they don't want to be accountable to him, they refuse to acknowledge him or give him the glory that he's due. Instead, they attempt to explain God away, even making up theories on the earth's origin, for example. Brian Clark, he writes that in the movie Expelled, Ben Stein presses this question to atheist Richard Dawkins. Tell me, where did it all begin? And he keeps pressing it until Dawkins finds himself in a corner, unable to give a reasonable explanation to the question, tell me, where, where did it begin? And Dawkins has nowhere to go, and so he finally says, well, maybe it came from the Martians. Really? That is your scientific conclusion? It came from the Martians? Even if it came from the Martians, where did the Martians come from? The great skeptic, David Hume, once said, allow me to tell you that I never asserted so absurd a proposition that anything might arise without a cause. And what these scholars are saying is that every event has a cause. I mean, think about the design of your car or, or the cameras in this room or the computer uh, that you're using right now to take in this service online. You wouldn't believe for a moment that they were, are the product of chance, that they you know, don't have a designer. And yet some people choose to believe that the mind-boggling vastness of our universe, that our eyes, which are in 3D color and amazingly complex, that our brains, which are far greater and more complex than any computer, are all the product of chance. Really? This is what Paul means when he says their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged, think of it, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images and idols Rather than embracing and worshiping the God of creation, some people will suppress the truth. They will settle for some of the most outlandish explanations in order to protect their worldview and avoid being accountable to God. But make no mistake, as long as we attempt to explain God away and suppress the truth, we will never understand who we really are We'll never understand why the world is in the mess that it's in, and we'll never understand if there's any hope beyond this life. And so, first of all, people suppress the truth about God. Secondly, people replace God with their own God or gods. Look at verse 22 again. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a moral, mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And then down in verse 25, he says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served, gave their life to temporary earthly things rather than to the creator 
When we replace God with something or someone else, it's called idolatry, the making of an idol. An idol is anything which takes the focus off of God and puts it on someone or something else. When anything is first in my life over God, when it becomes the object of my highest affection, that is an idol, even though in itself it may be a perfectly good thing. Most people today, they don't worship objects the way that ancient civilizations did. Rather, they worship images. Images of success, of status, wealth, even sensuality. We worship athletes and movie stars and musicians. But the biggest idol, often, is ourselves. We want to be on the throne. We want to be served. We want to be at the center of the universe, fully in charge with no one telling us what to do and how to live. And friends, that spirit enrages God because he knows it's that spirit which ultimately destroys us. That leads to Paul's third point here. When we ignore God, when we suppress the truth about him and or replace him with someone or something else, however subtle that may be, God's wrath is directed toward us. Now to be clear, even though God gets angry at our rebellion and our sin, his anger is never out of control. Yes, his anger is intense, but it is never an impulsive anger or a temper tantrum. No, God's anger is controlled. It is based on his justice and flows out of his love for us. Now, some people bristle at the thought of a wrathful God. They're okay with God being loving, but they absolutely reject a God that is wrathful. And yet, think about that for a moment. If one of your loved ones was beaten mercilessly by a group of thugs and left for dead, how would you feel about that? If your child was kidnapped and forced into sex slavery, how would you feel about that? Wouldn't you be absolutely outraged and demand justice? You see, while you're capable of loving, you are also capable of being enraged and expressing wrath. So why would it be any different with God in whose image we are made? It just doesn't make any logical sense. Well, let me give you another example. If your teenage son or daughter was destroying themselves through alcohol or drugs, would you just stand by and, and let them do it? Or would you be so angry at what the drugs, the alcohol uh, are doing to your, your, your child you would do everything possible to help them find victory, even if it means challenging them and exercising tough love on them. Of course you would. You're, you love your child, absolutely. But you see, your righteous anger at how they are destroying themselves through drugs and alcohol compels you to do something about it. 
Well, again, why would we change the rules, as it were, with God? For God to idly stand by while his children, you and me, whom he loves, are destroying ourselves through sin, would not reflect love, but hate. I mean, why do you think he warns us all the way through the scriptures? Essentially, to worship him rather than ourselves or other other, why does he warn us through the scriptures to not worship idols, to stay away from sin? That's not hate. It's not a God that's trying to destroy our fun. It's a God who ultimately loves us. The truth is it is precisely because God loves us that he must also be a God of wrath. Now last time, I talked briefly about the righteousness of God and that God is the standard of righteousness or the standard of rightness. Now here's the thing. Yes, it was his love, but it was also his righteousness, his rightness. It was his justice. It was his anger towards sin that compelled God the Father, Son, and Spirit to find a way to make a way for man to be made right again with the holy God so that we would no longer fall under the wrath of God. And church, this is the good news of the gospel. God has made a way through Jesus Christ, something that cost God the Father dearly. He gave his one and only son to pay for our sin and our rebellion on the cross. Turn to Romans 5.9. This is what Paul writes there. This is the good news that we're heading toward. Chapter 5. Verse 9. Since we have been justified, made right with him by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Do you hear what Paul's saying here? If you have sincerely put your trust in Christ and his righteousness, you need never fear the wrath of God again because Christ took all of God's wrath that was directed at you and me, he took it upon himself while he was on the cross and we are now in him, clothed and hidden within his righteousness. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that God doesn't discipline us. When you get disciplined and you're a child of his, remember, there's a difference between discipline and his wrath being poured out on you. Maybe sometimes you think it's his wrath, but it's not. It's his discipline. Like any loving parent, he does discipline us because that is what love does. A loving father will not stand by and let his son or daughter hurt or destroy themselves. No, a loving parent disciplines, and a loving parent also prunes the way you prune a fruit tree because they want to see their children grow and become all that they were created to be. But the discipline and the pruning is way different than the wrath of God. And as his spiritual children, we no longer need to fear his wrath because we now fall under his grace. 
The conflict between you and God is over if you have put your faith in him. He sees you completely different now. You are no longer the object of his wrath. No, you are now the object of his love and grace. And his, as his spiritual child, God is no longer your judge, but your loving father. And so in a few minutes, when you take the bread and the cup, say, Lord Jesus, thank you that by your grace, the war is over. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for taking upon yourself the wrath of God that was directed toward me. Thank you for the peace, the joy, the freedom, the victory that I now have within when you take the bread and the cup, surrender your life anew to him, friends. And commit to serving him with all of your heart. Not because you have to, but because you genuinely, you genuinely love him. And you want others to experience the peace and the joy of the Lord that you have. And perhaps even more importantly... that others would escape eternity separated from God. If anyone here has not put their trust in Jesus, I plead with you not to, have, uh, not to leave here today without responding to his invitation to come on home. Remembering the words of John 3, which are so apt as I wrap up this message, just let these words soak in. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on them. May this be the day you put your trust in Jesus completely and pass from spiritual death to everlasting life to the glory of God. Would you just bow your heads, close your eyes for a moment as we prepare our hearts to participate in Holy Communion. In Luke 22, we read that the disciples were gathered celebrating the Passover with Jesus. And Jesus said, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you today for your grace and mercy, for saving us from our sins through Jesus Christ. We will never fully understand, O oh Lord, your love and the price that you paid when you gave your one and only Son 
to die in our place. And Lord Jesus, we will never fully understand the greatness of your love for us and what it costs you to take the wrath of God's justice upon yourself. But we stop right now to remember and to give thanks and to worship you for your unfathomable love and grace extended to us even while we were yet sinners and rebellious toward you. Forgive us, Lord, for those times we've ignored you, times we've gone our own way, those times we've just taken you and your grace for granted. Cleanse us of sin, O Lord, and renew us by your Holy Spirit that we may love you and magnify your holy name. We ask that you would bless and sanctify with your word and spirit these gifts of bread and fruit of the vine that we, receiving them, may be partakers of the divine nature through Jesus Christ our Lord who taught us when we prayed to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us, Lord, of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You do not need to be a member of our church to participate. If you've embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior, and you're in right relationship with others, you're welcome to join us in this celebration of his death and resurrection. This time, just take the cup that you have received. Just open the top portion and re just to retrieve the wafer. And Jesus, he took the bread. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take, eat in remembrance of me. And as you do, cast your care upon him because he cares for you. Let's take of it together. The scripture says that Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the New Testament of my blood. This do you as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As you drink of it, receive his amazing grace, his forgiveness with thanksgiving. Let's take of it together. 